Today's episode discusses difficult topics, including murder and sexual assault. If these are triggers for you, please listen with caution. If you or someone you know has been the victim of sexual assault, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. On Monday, October 11th, 1999, page three of the Philadelphia Daily News featured a composite sketch of a young man under the headline, Let's Catch Him. The sketch was framed with the words, Wanted, $25,000 Reward. I remember that image from 20 years ago, and I remember thinking, Jesus, this guy could be anybody. The man in the hand-drawn picture looked anywhere between 18 and maybe 30 years old. He had short, dark hair with bangs that flopped over either side of his forehead. His race was indiscernible. His ethnicity could have been anything. To me, the face on the wanted poster looked like any young Italian man in Philly with a wide bridge nose and olive skin. Next to this image was a story about the center city rapist and the possibility he attacked his seventh victim in two years. According to then-Philadelphia Police Commissioner John Timoney, There were reasons to attribute this attack to the man who was known as the Center City Rapist. The physical description of the assailant matched the appearance of the man who'd assaulted women in and around the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood of Center City between 1997 and 1999. The victim's appearance was like the other women who'd been attacked. She was young, a college student. She was white. He didn't use a weapon. There was no gun, no knife. But he did brandish the weapons of fear and brutality. That's where the similarities ended. Previous attacks on women in Center City occurred in the early morning hours when it was very likely still dark and easy for someone to slip in and out of buildings unseen. While it was dark when this attack occurred, it happened in the evening, before 8 p.m. on a Sunday night. Granted, Sunday evenings in the city aren't as active as Friday or Saturday nights, but even 20 years ago, at 18th and Chestnut Streets in Center City, people would have been out on Sunday. Famous restaurateur Stephen Starr opened his first restaurant in Philadelphia on the corner of 18th and Chestnut Streets in 1995. That's the Continental, which today, just like back then, is always busy. The young woman attacked on that Sunday night in October 1999 lived on Chestnut Street, not far from this trendy, active corner. Her apartment was on the third floor of an old brownstone, above a business that sat on ground level. Commissioner Timoney called out this difference, too, as previously this man attacked women who lived closer to ground level. The commissioner wondered whether this meant he had a new assailant to capture or was the man, known only as the center city rapist, changing his style. If it were the latter, these changes in M.O. painted a picture of someone taking more risk. Either he didn't care as much about getting caught or, as Commissioner Timoney stated to the Philadelphia Daily News staff, the center city rapist was thumbing his nose at the police. After two years, maybe this guy didn't think Philadelphia police could catch him. This man already changed his M.O. Early in the morning on Thursday, May 7, 1998, a young woman studying for her doctorate at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania was murdered in her apartment near 23rd and Chestnut Streets. Shannon Schieber was 23 years old. She'd moved to Philadelphia from Maryland as a graduate student to attend college here in the city of brotherly love and lost her life in the process. Shannon's murderer was a serial rapist. She was the fifth victim of a man who one profiler believed saw his attacks as dates. 
But for a while, there was no connection between the Center City rapists' victims because the Philadelphia Police Department didn't classify all the assaults as rapes. In 1999, Philadelphia Inquirer reporters uncovered what could be called gross negligence in the way Philadelphia police handled rape cases. Whether it was an attitude like, I could care less about the victim, or not taking victims' claims seriously, especially if the victim were a sex worker or struggled with addiction, or classifying rapes as what the department called non-criminal emergencies. The cases of at least two women raped by this serial predator before Shannon Schieber fell into that non-criminal emergency classification. Someone preyed on women in Center City, Philadelphia, and it's possible the police department's lack of a sense of urgency, lack of compassion for the women who suffered these assaults, contributed to not only what happened to Shannon, but more women after her in two different states. Because the Center City rapist wasn't caught in Philadelphia. He was caught in Colorado. For almost three years after he murdered Shannon Schieber, he continued assaulting women. He was able to leave Philadelphia, travel to another state, keep on living his life as if he hadn't destroyed the lives of others. How is this man able to continue raping women and not get caught? What might Shannon Schieber's life have been like had she not fallen victim to the Center City Rapist? Have conditions improved in Philadelphia with regard to the police department's treatment of victims of sexual assault? They have, exponentially so, but that doesn't change the fact a young woman was raped and murdered by a man who continued to prey on women for years after her death. I'm Dina Marie, your host on part one of this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast, True Crime haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. According to the Pennsylvania Criminal Statute of Limitations, the time a prosecutor has before filing charges against someone for the crime of major sexual offenses is 12 years. Now, this wasn't always the timeline in the Keystone State. About 20 years ago, the statute of limitations for major sexual offenses was just five years. In December 2001, the Philadelphia District Attorney at the time, wait for it because you know this name, Lynn Abraham, obtained an arrest warrant for the Center City Rapist based on his DNA profile. Philadelphia police hadn't caught the man responsible for the rape of six women in Philadelphia and the murder of Shannon Schieber. But they were up against a five-year clock. The Center City rapist's first victim was attacked in 1997. That meant sometime in 2002, the statute of limitations would expire, and there may be no opportunity to bring this man to trial. But who was this man? Nobody knew. In the Affidavit of Probable Cause for Arrest Warrant filed in December 2001, the suspect known as the Center City Rapist was called John Doe. He was described as male, and his deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA profile, was spelled out, literally. Multiple strings of this person's DNA profile and genetic markers were detailed in the arrest warrant. His address was listed as unknown. I'd never heard of this, securing an arrest warrant for an unknown suspect. He wasn't entirely unknown because the city had his unique DNA profile, and there were a few composite sketches, so folks had an idea of what he looked like, but they didn't know who he was. 
When District Attorney Abraham obtained this John Doe arrest warrant, Pennsylvania State Legislature was considering extending the statute of limitations on major sexual offenses from 5 to 12 years. But that change hadn't yet been approved, nor would it have an impact on any cases already on the books. So she managed to get a judge to issue a warrant based on the suspect's DNA profile. This wasn't the first time a John Doe warrant was issued in the United States, but it was one of the earliest. The first John Doe warrant was issued a little more than a year before this warrant in Philly by an assistant district attorney in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There have been questions about the constitutionality of John Doe or DNA warrants, because according to Emily Clark, a contributor in the American Criminal Law Review of the Georgetown University Law Center, warrants are considered an accusation against a person, a real person, not just a name. But in most cases, courts uphold these DNA warrants because a person's DNA is the most exclusive means of personal identification. Courts have further stated DNA warrants are a more precise form of identification than a suspect's physical description. Side note, I think I've mentioned before that Law & Order SVU is the background in our home, especially when my daughter is home from college. Right now, Amazon Prime carries the earliest seasons of SVU all the way back to season one, which I recently realized I'd never seen because I jumped on the SVU bandwagon sometime around season three. Trust me when I tell you I'm shocked. The series got picked up based on that very first episode because it is so bad. The other thing that shocked me about season one of SVU was hearing Olivia Benson talk about a DNA warrant for a rape suspect and watching the judge in that episode throw the warrant out of court. That episode was from 2000, when DNA warrants were a relatively unknown practice. So I guess SVU has been ahead of the curve and running ripped from the headlines episodes since the series started. Four years after the first victim was attacked in 1997, Philadelphia had a warrant for the man who'd raped at least five women in Center City. During a December 2001 press conference, DA Abraham told reporters she believed this man raped other women. But the police weren't aware of all the victims because some women don't report their assaults or there was a lack of DNA connecting the crimes. Well, before Shannon Schieber was raped and murdered in May 1998, there were four women who did report their attacks. But their crimes weren't linked. I'd love to be able to tell you that's because there was no DNA or the crimes were dissimilar. Maybe the women lived in different parts of the city. But none of that is the case. According to a 1999 investigation conducted by the Philadelphia Inquirer, between 1984 and 1997, the Philadelphia Police Department was accused of classifying 30% of its caseload as Code 2701, which means investigation of a person. That classification didn't appear as part of Philadelphia's crime statistics because it's considered a non-criminal emergency. So investigation of a person could mean I'm investigating a person that's reported to be making a noise disturbance, playing their music too loud, or I'm investigating a person who isn't curbing their dog and picking up after them. It could be any minor call that comes in throughout the city. During that period of time, because of these classifications, Philadelphia may have appeared to suffer less crime than we really did, especially less sexual assaults. The Philadelphia Inquirer uncovered the first two sexual assaults by the Center City Rapist in the summer of 1997 were among the cases dumped in this black hole of uninvestigated crimes. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, reports that someone is sexually assaulted in America every 73 seconds. By this point, I've been talking to you for between 10 to 15 minutes. 
So that means at least a dozen people have been sexually assaulted just in the time you've been listening to this episode of Twisted Philly. A little more than 90% of the victims of sexual assault are female, and almost half the women who experience some form of sexual assault are victimized in their home, where you are supposed to feel safe. The National Sexual Violence Resource Center states that 63% of sexual assaults go unreported. The number of reported sexual assaults in Philadelphia declined between 2017 and 2018, and of course, civic leaders were quick to say that's because there were less sexual assaults in the city. But that may not be the case. Organizations in Philly who work with survivors haven't actually seen a decline in the rates of sexual assault in our city, only in victims' willingness to report. Between 1997 and 1999, six women were raped by the same man in Philadelphia. One of these women couldn't self-report because she was murdered. In October 1999, a little less than a year and a half after Shannon Schieber was murdered, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported the first two assaults by the Center City rapist were positively linked through DNA. But here's the catch. That testing wasn't done after the second assault or the third or the fourth, or even the fifth. DNA tests were run sometime shortly before the Inquirer newspaper released their findings about the police department. And the paper claimed these tests were run because the Inquirer asked about the cases and any associated DNA. Back then, the Philadelphia Public Safety Committee stated very loudly and very publicly they wanted hearings to uncover what the fuck happened within the Philadelphia Police Department with regard to sexual assault cases. The majority of members of the Public Safety Committee agreed to hearings in the hope of holding our city's police department accountable for basically burying reports of sexual assault. At least two committee members were very public about their desire not to move forward with public hearings because they felt it wasn't their job to police the police. Really, you find out 30% of reported crime over a period of at least 13 years went uninvestigated. And many of the crimes within that 30% were rapes or other forms of sexual abuse. And your perspective is it's not up to us to police the police? I want to be very clear, this is not the way the Philadelphia Police Department handles reported sexual assaults today. In fact, Philadelphia is now viewed as an example of how to get it right. But that's not where we were 20 years ago. It took a lot of work to make positive changes, and we will talk about that journey But right now, I want to tell you more about Shannon Schieber and the anonymous women who were all victims of the same man. The first reported attack happened on Friday, June 20th, 1997. A 27-year-old woman was assaulted after a man used a dumpster to hoist himself up to her second-floor apartment window. This window had bars on it. These are often called burglar bars to prevent intruders. But this guy was able to squeeze between the bars and enter her apartment through that window. So he had to be fit to climb up on top of a dumpster that's probably five or six feet high, then pull himself up to a second floor window. And he had to be pretty slim to squeeze between the bars on that window, because according to police documents, the space between the bars was seven inches wide. He let himself into this woman's apartment, raped her, and then left. 
He left behind DNA that went untested for over two years. By the way, the young woman assaulted in June 1997 told Philadelphia Inquirer reporters she wasn't interviewed by the police rape squad until the fall of 1999. This was the first rape classified as Code 2701, investigation of a person, which meant non-criminal emergency. About three weeks later, a 25-year-old woman was raped by the same man on July 11, 1997, just about a block from that first attack. The woman raped in June lived at 21st and Spruce Streets. The second woman lived on Pine just past 21st Street. I don't know if these women knew each other, but it's entirely possible they did. Not only is it possible, but it's likely they shopped at the same corner market, grabbed their coffee from the same neighborhood cafe. Maybe they passed each other on the street a few times a week on the way to work or on their way home from the gym after hanging out with their girlfriends or boyfriends. The location of these rapes were ridiculously close to one another for someone not to look at this and at least wonder whether they were connected. But like the first attack, this case also landed in Code 2701, investigation of a person and non-criminal emergency. I'm so infuriated telling you this story because you can look at this neighborhood online. Some of the businesses won't be the same today, but if you go to Google and search for 21st and Spruce in Philadelphia, and then look for 21st and Pine, you will see how closely these women live to one another. Proximity may not guarantee crimes are related, but for God's sake, it should have caught someone's attention. The third attack happened on August 6th, 1997, also on Pine Street. It was about five blocks from the second attack, closer to 16th. Just like the first attack, the rapist squeezed between burglar bars to climb in the window of a first-floor apartment. One week later, he struck again, again on Pine Street, this time between 17th and 18th. He had a hunting ground, and he stuck to it. Again, he found his way into a young woman's apartment, but this time it got more violent. He punched this young woman he assaulted on August 13th, 1997. According to police reports, he told her he wouldn't kill her if she stopped screaming. In fear for her life, she complied. Four attacks in less than two months during the summer of 1997 all within about four to five blocks from one another, all with the same description of the assailant. All were apartments on or close to ground level. The assailant slipped in through a window. In two cases, he managed to squeeze between burglar bars. How fucking skinny must this guy have been to squeeze between bars like that? There was so much disturbing continuity between these assaults. It's so hard for me to imagine they weren't linked by the third attack, but they weren't. There was a serial rapist in Center City, Philadelphia in the summer of 1997, and nobody talked about it. There was a 10-month gap after the attack on August 13, 1997. I remembered there were more than four women raped by this man in the late 90s, but I didn't remember that gap. Learning that detail now raised so many questions in my mind. And I think about what then-District Attorney Lynn Abraham said during that 2001 press conference about the Center City rapist that he'd likely raped more women, and some of them chose not to come forward. I find it hard to believe this man who terrorized and raped four women within blocks of one another in less than two months had the self-control to go 10 months before hurting someone else. I wonder and I worry about other women in Philadelphia who may have been raped by the same man in the same neighborhoods. I wonder if residents in that five-block area talked about what happened to the young women who were raped over the summer of 1997 if they shook their heads in disbelief 
over the fact there was so little press about these attacks because remember, at least the first two were coded as non-criminal emergencies. They never would have made the Philadelphia Nightly News. Did people realize what was happening to the women in their community and wonder what the police were doing to stop this from happening to any other women in Philadelphia? Is it possible residents knew the police weren't taking these crimes seriously? The crime of rape, the violation of sexual assault, and figured no one would care, so why speak up? That 10-month gap is a long time, and I think the DA may have been right. There probably were more victims, and they didn't come forward. The fifth assault attributed to the Center City Rapist happened on May 7, 1998. The Daily Pennsylvanian, which is an independent student media organization at the University of Pennsylvania, published a story about the attack of Shannon Schieber in January 2004, with more details than I'd seen anywhere else in my research. Those details were an anxiety-ridden timeline of what happened starting around 2 a.m. on May 7, shortly before Shannon was murdered. Shannon Schieber was the fifth victim of the Center City Rapist. What began with his stealth entry through sliding glass doors in the rear of Shannon's second-floor apartment at 23rd and Spruce Streets, just two blocks from his first victim, ended in murder. Shannon grew up in Maryland. She moved to Philadelphia to continue her education. According to her parents, friends, family, and anyone who was ever interviewed about her, Shannon Schieber was smart. Actually, smart doesn't really cut it. She was studying for her doctorate degree at the University of Pennsylvania after already graduating with three majors from Duke University. Three frigging majors, any of which would have been a heavy area of study on its own. Economics, mathematics, and philosophy. I watched my daughter go through her second year of college with two majors, and it's not easy. I cannot imagine the level of commitment and focus, the amount of work that had to be put in to graduate with a triple major. So it's no surprise when Shannon Schieber turned her attention to pursuing her doctorate, she turned to one of the most prestigious schools in the country, the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. She hadn't been in Philadelphia more than a year, and on the morning of May 7, 1998, one of her neighbors made a call to 911. A transcript of that call was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer in November 2000. At 2.04 a.m., a man called 911. He said, hello, my next-door neighbor, I just heard her yelling for help. And the dispatcher asked, what's wrong? The man replied, we're on the second floor, we're on one side, she's on the other, and I just heard her yell help. I knocked on the door, and I heard, like, a choking-type sound, so I just called. The dispatcher told the caller she'd have someone out to check on his neighbor's apartment as soon as possible. The call was given a priority one. Two Philadelphia police officers were sent to Shannon Schieber's address near 23rd and Spruce Streets. They arrived just before 2.12 a.m., so about eight minutes after Shannon's neighbor called 911. About five minutes later, those officers reported the call as unfounded and left. There were no other noises, screams, thuds, nothing, heard from Shannon's apartment the rest of the night. Later that day, her brother Sean had plans to meet Shannon for lunch but she wasn't at work where they were supposed to meet. He went to his sister's apartment. There was no answer. 
And there, he and the neighbor who called 911 the night before broke down Shannon's door. Inside, Shannon lay on her bed. She was unclothed, and she'd been murdered. How do you wrap your head around that sight? Finding a loved one, especially someone so young like Shannon, she was just 23 years old, brilliant, athletic, beautiful, someone who absolutely fit the cliche you hear, oh, they were so full of life. That was Shannon Sheber. Her neighbor called 911 for the second time in 24 hours, but this time it was to report his neighbor was dead. He told the dispatcher he called the night before when he'd heard someone yelling from Shannon's apartment. Shannon's cry for help around 2 a.m. wasn't the first indication something was wrong early that morning. Sometime after 1 a.m., but before he made the 911 calls, Shannon's neighbor and his girlfriend heard what they thought sounded like people struggling. It might have been the sound of something being knocked over, or maybe the sound of heavy footsteps or shoving. They couldn't absolutely describe it, and they disagreed on whether it came from the neighboring apartment or if it came from outside. In the months and years after Shannon Schieber's death, much about that night and the police visit to her apartment came to light, partly through depositions and witness testimony, which a federal judge ruled could be released to the public even after protestations from Philadelphia police because Shannon's parents filed a lawsuit against the police department. A downstairs neighbor also heard noise from Shannon's apartment early that morning, the sound of something heavy hitting the floor. When the two Philadelphia police officers arrived around 2.12 a.m. on the morning of May 7, 1998, they were greeted by multiple neighbors in Shannon's apartment building, including the neighbor who called 911 and reported he'd heard her scream for help. The police banged on Shannon Schieber's door, And it must have been loud because they didn't just knock with their hands. They knocked with nightsticks. They announced themselves, police, come out. But there was nothing. There was no sound, no response. Nobody called from inside for help. Nobody even said, hey, hold on. I just woke up. Let me throw on a robe. There was nothing. It was just silence. Here's where things got confusing for me. There was a discussion between the two Philadelphia police officers and Shannon's neighbors standing around her apartment door. Should the police break in? They knocked loudly, banged on the door, announced who they were, and there was no response as if no one were home. It seems unlikely the apartment was empty within seven minutes after someone heard a woman scream for help. According to the officers at the scene, the neighbor who made the 911 call now wasn't 100% sure if the sounds of a struggle and the cry for help absolutely came from Shannon's apartment. That's how the officers recalled their visit. They said the reporting witness wasn't sure what he'd heard. Another neighbor, awakened by the sounds of police banging on Shannon's door, came downstairs to see what was going on. He was asked about his recollection of the conversation, whether to break down Shannon's door. He remembered the two police officers asked the reporting neighbor, how would you feel if we break down the door and nothing's wrong? That was a direct quote from his testimony in the case against the Philadelphia Police Department and against these two responding officers. The neighbor who called 911 testified that even he wasn't sure what to do. He told police he would be embarrassed if they broke down the door and nothing was wrong. Since there were no sounds coming from Shannon's apartment anymore, the police chose not to forcibly enter. They did walk around the outside of the apartment. They didn't see any signs of a break-in, and they reported the concerns were unfounded. The neighbors in the hallway that night testified they believed the police officers handled the situation in what they called a reasonable manner. If by the time police arrived, there were no longer sounds of a struggle or anyone calling for help or the sound of someone being choked, 
As Shannon Schieber's neighbor initially reported, they assumed nothing was wrong and it made sense for the police to leave. Okay, fifth period quarterbacking is easy. It's easy for all of us to listen to this and talk about what we would have done or what we might have asked the police to do. As I researched this episode, there were so many times I said either out loud or to myself, are you fucking kidding me? I don't care if they made me pay for the door. I would have had those officers break it down. Maybe I would have. Sitting in my house over 20 years later, of course I'll react to all of this with shock and frustration. But who knows how I or you or anyone might have reacted in that moment. As I tell you the story, I'm still in a little bit of shock. Five minutes after you hear someone scream for help, they actually use the word help and sound as if they're being choked. You let the police leave without breaking down the door. And that's not fair. It's not fair for me to judge how Shannon's neighbors reacted. They didn't know Shannon other than to know her as the woman who lived next door. They had no relationship with her. Maybe they were concerned if she was home, she'd be furious that her home was invaded like that. Maybe her neighbor who called 911 really wasn't certain after he gave it some thought. Were those sounds outside or inside? Were they from Shannon's apartment or someone else's apartment? I call all of this out because if you're like me, you may be listening thinking, what the fuck, like I have. And while that is an absolutely understandable reaction, we truly have no idea how we'd respond because we weren't there. We can only say what we think we might have done. By the next day, when Shannon's brother, Sean, found her murdered in her apartment, her neighbor's concerns the night before were confirmed. Shannon had been in trouble, and that had to have been such a gut punch for the guy who called 911 and for the neighbors who talked to police and didn't push them to break down the door. It probably was a nightmare for those two officers, too. It's a fucking nightmare any way you look at this. Shannon Schieber was the fifth victim of the Center City Rapist, and she was the only one murdered. Why did this man escalate to murder? I spent more time than I'd ever imagine researching typologies of serial rapists, trying to understand why this man raped six women in Philadelphia, because there was another attack after Shannon's murder. And that sounds ludicrous. How can any of us possibly understand something that is so vicious and violent and disturbing and violating on so many levels? This makes for horrible reading. In an effort to protect my own psyche, I stuck to clinical publications as if that made it any easier. I naively thought it would, but it didn't. In the book Serial Murder and the Psychology of Violent Crimes, which is a vast tome of research papers on the topics mentioned in the title, there's a section dedicated to serial murder and serial rape and a comparison of violence typologies between the two. In this chapter, authors Stacy Shipley and Ph.D. Professor Bruce Arrigo rely on perpetrator typologies that were identified in the late 70s, anger rape, power rape, and sadistic rape. Over the subsequent 30 years between the time those definitions were established and the time this book was published, investigators, clinicians, physicians, professors, profilers, you name it, have deepened the understanding of the types and motivators of rapists. And it becomes so much more complex than just three categories. There's subcategories, there's fourfold typology, and as I read through the descriptions by Shipley and Arrigo, the first one, power reassurance rapist, seemed to be the closest to the man who terrorized women in Center City, Philadelphia, between 1997 and 1999. 
Shipley and Arrigo's findings are based on their own discovery, as well as the works of other experts, including the Journal of Interpersonal Violence and the National Center for Women in Policing. They describe the power reassurance rapist as a gentleman rapist. Yeah, I I couldn't wrap my head around that phrase. He tries not to harm his victims if he can help it. He also needs reassurance about his maleness and his masculinity. And then in turn, he reassures his victims he won't injure them, as if the act of rape isn't already a psychological and physical injury. The power reassurance rapist is just interested in intercourse. He's planful, premeditated, and his victims likely fulfill some fantasy relationship in his head. So much of this sounded like descriptions of the Center City Rapist, of his behavior with victims, including the description of pillow talk with his victims. Power reassurance rapists do not intend to kill their victims. As part of the suit Shannon Schieber's parents filed against the Philadelphia Police Department, a supervisory special agent with the FBI was asked to develop a profile of the Center City Rapist. His profile read very much, and in some cases almost verbatim, to the description of power reassurance rapists in the book Serial Murder and Psychology of Violent Crimes. This man did not go to Shannon Schieber's apartment intent on killing her. The profiler said these attacks seemed more like dates to this man. He didn't want to hurt his victims, but Shannon wasn't going down without a fight. I mentioned before Shannon Schieber was athletic. She was also tall. She was 5'10", fit, strong. And the FBI profiler believes she fought against her rapist, and she injured him. At this point, no one knew who he was, but they could make a guess about his build. Very slender. He had to have been to squeeze between burglar bars, as he'd done during at least two prior attacks. He may not have been much bigger than Shannon. It was likely within a few minutes after her scream for help or the time the police arrived, Shannon's attacker decided he had to kill her to silence her or risk his own arrest if the police heard her scream or heard sounds of a struggle. He left her apartment the same way he got in, through the second floor sliding glass doors, out onto the balcony, and down onto the street. What he may not have realized is he left blood on the doors because Shannon cut him during their struggle. The lawsuit filed against Philadelphia police by Shannon Schieber's family opened people's eyes to so many details about the Center City Rapist, which had previously been denied to the public, including an investigatory memo from the Philadelphia Police Department as early as 1997, indicating the city believed the same man may have been responsible for four rapes in Center City. Now, we didn't have just one serial rapist in Philadelphia in the 90s. There was at least one other, the Fairmount Rapist, who was more violent. He targeted victims that were older than those in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood in Center City. But the police also considered whether all of these attacks could have been committed by the same man. During trial testimony, members of the Philadelphia police force stated they had not been told about a pattern or the possibility of a serial rapist in that particular area of Center City, nor were they aware of the investigatory memo. So what was the point of that memo, indicating there may have been connections between sexual assaults in the community if they weren't going to tell anyone about it and they weren't testing DNA to prove those assertions? I already mentioned the department hadn't tested DNA until 1999, after Shannon Schieber's family filed a lawsuit. And they filed a lawsuit because their repeated calls and pleas for the city to find out why a 911 call about their daughter's cry for help was treated as a non-emergency that might have resulted in her death. There could have been another reason there were no DNA tests done for over two years after the first two assaults. According to information obtained by the Philadelphia Inquirer back in 1999, the sex crimes unit of the Philadelphia police seemed to forget 
there was physical evidence from the first assault in June 1997. And about the second assault, they said since the victim was choked unconscious, they didn't see the need to speak with her because they didn't think she'd have much information to share. Again, this was 20 years ago, and since then, significant positive changes were implemented in the Philadelphia Police Department. But 20 years ago is not the 40s or the 50s. We had technology and DNA testing and computers and channels of communication to alert patrol officers about criminal patterns in the neighborhoods they patrolled. It didn't have to be this bad, but too many people didn't seem to care about sexual assaults against women. There was another reported assault attributed to the Center City Rapist on August 28, 1999. This one was a little further from Rittenhouse Square on New Dane Street between 19th and 20th, but it was only about two blocks from the second attack in 1997. The attacker managed to open a security grate over a first-floor window to get into the house where an 18-year-old college student lived. While the story I told you in today's introduction about an attempted rape in October 1999 had many similarities to the attacks of the Center City Rapist, He wasn't the perpetrator. There were six reported rapes proven to be committed by one man, but the FBI profiler working with Shannon Schieber's family believed he'd committed at least three times that number, and the other assaults were just never reported. I can tell you this man was eventually caught, but it wasn't in Philadelphia. It was in Fort Collins, Colorado, where Troy Graves raped seven more women. How was he caught? Was he tried in Colorado or Philadelphia? What was the result of that lawsuit filed by Shannon Schieber's family against the Philadelphia Police Department? How has the department changed the way they support victims of sexual assault? We'll talk about all of that in part two of this episode about the Center City Rapist. If you or someone you know has been the victim of sexual assault, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. I'll post it in the show notes and on my social media pages. You can also talk with someone online if you feel more comfortable that way by going to hotline.rainn.org backslash online and then click go chat. As always, thank you for listening. That's it for part one of this episode. Ciao for now, Twisters.